0: Hi, WorkWell listeners. I'm really excited to share that my book, Work Better Together, is officially out. Conversations with WorkWell guests and feedback from listeners like you inspired this book. It's all about how to create a more human-centered workplace. And as we return to the office for many of us, this book can help you move forward into post-pandemic life with strategies and tools to strengthen your relationships and focus on your well-being. It's available now from your favorite book retailer. When it comes to art, I will admit, I am more of a passive onlooker than a creator. But art isn't just beautiful and interesting to look at. It also serves as an important tool to help us enhance our observation and problem-solving skills. Sharpening our perception not only changes the way we look at art, but it can also change the way that we see the world. This is the Workwell podcast series, Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be here with you today to talk about all things well-being. I'm here with Amy Herman. Amy is a lawyer and art historian who uses works of art to sharpen observation, analysis, and communication skills. She is also the author of the best-selling book, Visual Intelligence, Sharpen Your Perception, Change Your Life, and the book, Fixed. How to Perfect the Fine Art of Problem Solving. Amy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm so excited for this conversation. We haven't had a conversation like this yet on the Work Well podcast, so I am I'm ready to dive in. But first, tell us a little bit about you yourself. How you became passionate about art.
1: Sure. Um, So my name is Amy Herman, and I am the founder and president of my company called The Art of Perception. And I throw this out there at the beginning of all my intros. I am a recovering lawyer. I just get that out there. Um, I'm a lawyer in recovery, and I'm also an art historian. And I like to think that I took the practical aspects of each of those disciplines, legal analysis and visual analysis, because I hated being a lawyer, I decided to do something with my legal education and combine it with all the skills from my training as an art historian to create my company 21 years ago. Uh, It's called The Art of Perception. And when I left the law, I became the head of education at the Frick Collection here in New York City, which is a real gem of an art museum. It's this tiny, amazing art collection. And while I was there, I started this program, sort of the first iteration of what I do, and it wasn't my idea, and it wasn't rocket science. The idea was to take medical students out of their clinical setting, bring them to an art museum, teach them how to analyze works of art, so that when they go back to the hospital in the clinical setting, they'll be better observers of their mm. patients. They were doing it at Yale, and with Yale's permission, I started it. And in 2004, the whole thing exploded. It appeared on the front page of a big financial newspaper here in New York City, and I got calls from all over the world, and people said, come teach us how to see. And I thought, Wow. Maybe there are some real skills in this. So that's what I've been doing ever since.
0: That's pretty amazing. So so when it comes to art, are you are you an Artist, are you a connoisseur of art? Like, how would you describe your relationship or your passion for art?
1: Okay, let's just say that I am
0: ferociously untalented. <laughs> you and me both. Art. So that's why I had like, to ask.
1: Like, like bold underscore and you know, and italicize, un unfer- uh, ferocious. I I wish I had the creative mm. gene, but what I do love to do. And I'm really very fortunate because I know this doesn't happen to everybody. I had an aha moment in college, 1986, that's how old I am. And I was in an art history seminar and the professor put these two paintings up and they literally took my breath away. I thought somebody created those, somebody painted those with canvas and paintbrushes. And my world was never the same. And I love, love, love looking at art. It moves me in a way that nothing else does. But I also realized that it doesn't move a lot of people. But I know that art is so powerful. So what I'd like to think that I've done in my work is channeled that power of art and brought it to people who would never ever think of looking at art as part of their work.
0: Yeah, I. So I want to dive into that because I'm I'm one of those people, and <laughs> <laughs> I, and and I challenge. and, and <laughs> I would definitely say much more of a passive onlooker when it when it comes to art. Not that I don't appreciate it, but it just you know I have no idea how to do it. So. Uh, Therefore, I guess I've never paid much attention. But one of your books is is called Visual Intelligence. So tell us what that is. Visual intelligence, it's two things. It's seeing what
1: other people don't. Mm -hmm. That's my first definition. The ability to see what other people don't. And visual intelligence is the ability to filter out the noise. We are bombarded in the world we live in right now. We're on a 24 7 news cycle. We have social media, we have texts, we have emails, we have phone, constant, constant, constant. And our brains are physically incapable of processing all that information. So by giving people the tools and teaching them what I call visual intelligence, I teach them how to. Filter out that noise. And the title of my presentation when I give it live is called The Art of Perception, Seeing What Matters Now. That's what visual intelligence is, seeing what matters now to you. And when I have groups like you of people who say, yeah, we're going to look at art, (laughs) what's in it for me? My answer is always the same. After spending time with me learning to look at works of art and mining it as data, I promise you'll leave the session thinking differently about the work that you do and the world you engage in.
0: So take me through that. Say you and I are standing next to a painting at an art museum. Walk me through this process. Sure.
1: Okay. I'm going to add one more person to the party. Okay. okay? So it's going to be me and you and let's say one of your colleagues. Okay. Okay. So I'm standing with you at the Met in front of a sculpture. Okay, so let's say the sculpture is a horse. And I say to you, okay, I say to both of you, I want you to each spend 10 seconds looking at this sculpture of a horse. And the two of you, you think, God, 10 seconds is an eternity. What is there to see? But when you realize 10 seconds, I have to look. I'm going to have to be able to talk about this. You spend 10 seconds looking at the sculpture. And then I ask each of you to describe that sculpture to me as if I could not see what you were looking at. Hmm. I can almost guarantee that each of you will give me almost an entirely different version of what it is that you're looking at. And I say to you, you know, that's fine here in the museum where it's the three of us and the sculpture of a horse. But what happens at the crime scene? What happens in the operating room? What happens in the boardroom? What happens at the department meeting when you look, you have this assumption that everybody there sees things the way you do because you've worked together for 20 years. You've been through problems. You've been through hell and back. When the opposite is true, no two people see anything the same way. And we have to renew our renew that concept all the time to remember to articulate what we see and what we perceive because the person sitting next to us does not see the same things. As someone said to me this week, your assumptions are like windows on the house. When you clean them, it's amazing what you'll be able to see.
0: <laughs> I, I, I love that. So, so visual <laughs> intelligence, I mean, does it, I, I guess, is it, is it helping us see things more clearly or is it helping us to see things the way that other people see things or is it both? No. Okay. Well, some of that, but what it really comes down to
1: you know, I, I, what it comes down to is effectively communicating what it is that you observe. Mm, okay. Because 99% of the people that are in my class, they're already good. They already have good, if not extraordinary, observation skills. That's not the problem. The problem, as I perceive it, is in the consistent breakdown of the effective communication of what it is we observe. So something gets lost from our seeing eyes to our speaking mouths, to our texting fingers, and our typing thumbs. And I don't know what's getting lost, but something's really getting lost. Have you ever heard someone speaking and you say to yourself, they can't possibly mean what they're saying. They can't possibly mean it. And so what I want to do is make make that connection more solid and say, I'm going to say exactly what it is that I see, and I'm going to not say what I don't want to say. So what I focus on is that connection between seeing and communicating. That's where the problem is. It's not that we don't see well. What I want a single person to do, you and your colleague, before you talk about the horse, is to pause for two seconds and say, let me make sure I'm saying exactly what it is that I want to convey. Because one thing that's constant, pre-pandemic, during the pandemic, and after the pandemic, time is your most precious commodity. Nobody has time to waste. So let's get it right the first
0: time. And if looking at works of art can help you do that, I'm all for it. Yeah, I'm I'm already starting to think about art differently. So you are using two words here that I want to clarify. You're ta- you're you're saying seeing and observing. So how is seeing different from observing?
1: Okay, we all everybody sees. You know, we all are well, people that are not visually impaired, right. we look around, we see what's around us. But when you observe something, it catches your attention. So, it catches your attention and you think about it, you focus. What happens when you become a nerd to things around you, you stop observing around you. Hmm. And so, when I give an assignment, if I have uh, sessions over two days, when we go home at the end of the first day, I say to my classes, All right, tomorrow when you come back, I want you to come back with one thing that you went out of your way to observe that you didn't see the day before. And you'd be amazed what people come back with because the majority of us go from point A to point B every day, point A to point B and back from point B to point A. And the longer we do that, the more hesitant we become to look at point C's, D, and E. Mm. And there's a lot to see out there that can actually enrich the journey from A to B. So all I'm doing is augmenting people's lenses and giving them to tool the tools to communicate what they see when they
0: augment their lens. And so how does observing help us in problem solving in in our jobs and our lives in the business world. Well I'm gonna to add to that to your
1: question and I'm gonna say how does observing works of art mm-hmm. translate back? How's that? I love it. To- Let's do it. <laughs> Not to change your question. That's but okay. That's a- <laughs>
0: The better question.
1: How does does looking at works of art translate to solving business problems? I'll start by saying that I think the best things happen on the exit ramp of our comfort zone. Mm. When I take you to the exit ramp of your comfort zone and say, look, we're all on a level playing field. Nobody has to know anything about art. You don't even have to like art. All I want you to do is engage and look and follow the assignments here. When you're all at ground zero, there's nothing threatening. You can look at the art together. You can laugh about it. You can say what you see. And then when I show you what you missed... You don't feel dumb because nobody's an art expert. But then when you go back to your job, you say, "Okay, here's this here's the case we're working on." And then you step back for a second and think, "Is there anything I might be missing?" And then you pose the question to your colleagues, "Hey, look, here's the case. Is there anything any of us is missing?" And you'll be amazed at what you hear because no two people see anything the same way, and somebody may voice an observation that wouldn't have even crossed your brain. And what happens in the end? You come up making you come up with a better solution to your problem because you've had more insights, and more perspectives. Quite selfishly, multiple perspectives make for better decision making. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at a piece of art together and you say, oh, I didn't even notice that, you know, dog in the corner. Well, what happens back in the office when someone tells you, you know, the client's top priority is X. What if it had slipped your mind? And that colleague reminds you of that. And all of a sudden, wow, I can make a totally better presentation because you reminded me of what the client's top priority is. So it's about looking how to ask questions, understanding that no two people see the same thing, and being able to incorporate that into solutions to problems that you're facing in a business context.
0: So I have to. You're probably going to cringe when I tell you this, but if I do, you can't see me. <laughs> That's true. Um, so you have to. You'll have to make an, an, a, a, an audible, an, an audio cringe. Yes. Um, so where my head is going is you know throughout our lives and and I should actually remember this but there's like in in school and you know on social media there's always like you know a picture of something and you know half the population sees a grandmother and the other half the half of the population sees I'm going to get it wrong but I'm just going to say a giraffe and sure. then there was one a few years ago that like half the population saw a blue dress and the other right. one saw a gold dress. So, right. am, am I on the right path here, or like, can you? You are okay. You are. You're,
1: <laughs> you're. Yeah. Let's let's put it this way. You're definitely on the right track. Okay. Those examples that you're giving us are optical are optical. Okay. So when you're, let's bring up the dress example. And it was everywhere on the internet. I saw a blue dress. My son saw a gold dress. And we agreed to disagree because neither of us was right. Neither of us was wrong, even though the dress was blue. And what that comes down to is a rods and cones issue in the brain, how mm-hmm. we see color. But in a, in a bigger world, in the overarching goal, the exercises were good. And they reminded us that no two people see anything the same way, even when it's abundantly clear to you that the answer is so-and-so. You can never assume that what's obvious to you is obvious to somebody else. It just, it just isn't that way. So here's the example. Uh, I, had, I, worked, I had a job uh, right after I left the Frick Collection, before I went out on my own to lead the Art of Perception. And the department head called all 10 of us in and said, okay, we've got a problem here. We have a problem in this department. And before he told us how he was going to solve the problem, he said, I want to go around this little conference room and I want each of you to state what you believe the problem is. And you would be amazed at the number of problems that were raised at that meeting. And this guy, everybody went into the meeting when we heard we had a problem to discuss, thinking we were going to discuss his or her particular problem. Mm -hmm. And there were probably 10 different problems to discuss. (laughs) So, you know, have you ever gone into a meeting and come out and say, what was that about? Mm -hmm. Of course you have. (laughs) Everybody has. And so the ability to communicate what it is we see, what we notice, what we perceive, what we think is important, and what's capturing our attention is really what's important to come out of this idea of looking at art is understanding that no two people see anything the same way. And if I'm going to help solve a problem, it is incumbent upon me to be able to articulate thoroughly and using economy of language my perception of a certain problem.
0: And so you mentioned earlier, all of the distractions in our life, particularly from technology. So Mm -hmm. how, how does, I mean, is it, is it all bad? You know, how does technology impact our visual intelligence, both positively and negatively?
1: You know what? We let's let's just all agree that technology is here
0: to yes, stay. It is. Okay. It's not going anywhere.
1: It's really not going anywhere. And so we've shaped our lives around technology. And so the idea is to look up from your screens when you need to look up from your screens, when you need to rest your eyes, and when you need to think about something. Because as cops told me years ago, There is no substitute for a pair of human eyes attached to a human brain. Nothing can replicate human eyes attached to a human brain. And we need to remember that is our best weapon. That is our best source. And when you're having a real problem, look up from your screen, think, look, and engage, and you'll get insights that are right in front of you that you might not have seen otherwise.
0: (sighs) I love that. Uh, Recently, there was a a picture that was that was going around about it with a gentleman. I think he was watching a golf game and um, everybody everybody was uh, had their head down looking at their technology. And he was standing there uh, enjoying himself and drinking a beer (laughs) that
1: I love that. I just, I love that. And you know something, I'm going to just throw this in there because it might not have the same takeaway as the guy on the golf course (laughs) drinking his beer. But I have a class for a police department on Thursday at the Met and I needed to go prepare today. And I was sort of harried this morning. I thought, oh, it's 95 degrees. I have to go to the Met. I have to run around. I spent about an hour and a half running around the collections, picking the paintings and sculptures and photographs that I was going to use. Didn't consult my phone and just looked and decided what's going to make for a fruitful conversation. Hmm. And I left the Met in so much better of a mood than I went in.
0: Hmm.
1: And I was working, you know, I had to put the, I had to put the images together because I'm going to use them on Thursday, but there were all these new works of art. And I thought, Oh, this is so cool. I love this. Let me figure out why I love it. Let me figure out how I'm going to use it. And I engaged my brain in a way that, you know, my laptop wasn't with me. My phone was with me, but I really wasn't using it. And it was just amazing. It was was really incredible.
0: So is there any way that we can use technology to help improve our visual intelligence or is the way to look away?
1: (laughs) No, I think that we can use technology in a way. And this is how. I have, when we're facing problems, I have boiled down my new book about problem solving. Mm -hmm. When you are facing a new problem or a new conflict, you need to ask three questions. And sometimes... Technology can help you answer the questions. The first question is, what do I definitively know? What do I see and what do I know? The second question is, what don't I know? And you think, well, how do I identify what I don't know? You need to identify what's missing. And that's where technology can come into play. And the third question logically follows. If you had the opportunity to get more information, what do you need to know? So it's what do I know, what don't I know? And if I had the opportunity to get more information, what do I need to know? And it's this really wonderful amalgamation of what do I know from seeing? What do I know from observing? What do I know from discussions? But what don't I know and what can I look up and use my technology Mm -hmm. to the best of my ability to help solve the problem? Because in the end, it's not whether I see the problem or I look up the answer to the problem. It's how do I get to an effective and sustainable solution and whatever resources you need You should use, but I want to remind people how rich of a resource we have in our own vision, observation, and perception.
0: And so, and this is from your book, Fixed. And so is that, you talk about, you know, how an artist creates a work of art as a template for problem solving. So is that the template? And can you kind of talk me through the process that like an artist would go through?
1: No, the template that I just gave you is actually something I learned from the intelligence community about solving problems. (laughs) But it, but I applied it in the book right, quite a okay. bit. And I applied it in visual intelligence. The way that I use the artist process in Fixed is as I told you at the beginning of our discussion, you and I have something in common, we're ferociously untalented and uncreative when it comes to making things. But it doesn't mean that I am not in awe of the artist's process. Like when I look at a painting, I think, how does someone even do that? How do you even begin to do that? And what I did in the book is I took the artist's process apart, I said, how do you get from idea, ideation, inspiration to a final work of art in a museum? And I traced the process using one work of art that was created in 1819, and it memorialized a horrible event in France, the, the, um, a ship running aground and people thro- being thrown overboard and had to float on a raft for 15 days. And they descended into cannibalism. It was a terrible event. And Jericho painted the picture. And it was scandalous. And it made the government look bad and blah, blah, blah. But, but what I did is I said, how did Jericho come up with this idea? And how did he go from inspiration to getting the materials to learning to paint dead bodies to exhibiting at the Louvre. The painting is on view at the Louvre. So I broke the book into three big sections, prepped, prep, draft, and exhibit. And each of those sections has subdivisions like setting deadlines and watching out for red herrings and, you know, things that you can do within prepping, putting your ideas together, drafting, putting your ideas on paper, throwing things away, starting again. And finally, what does exhibit involve? How are you going to present your ideas and your solutions to the world? And it's in such general terms that I think it's really applicable to a whole host of issues, Mm -hmm. problems and disciplines.
0: Yeah, for sure. So. Yeah, you know, we've talked about observation and you've mentioned a few time perception. So let's talk about perception. What, what is it and, and is perception a skill?
1: I believe that uh, observations of the five senses inform our perceptions mm-hmm. and perceptions inform our inferences. So observations are basically what we see, hear, smell, taste and feel. And when we see things, that informs our observations. Here's, a, here's an example. When you walk into a restaurant, if something smells really good and you hear people laughing, you think, I want to eat here. <laughs> it's the food smells good. People are having a good time. I want to be part of that. You wouldn't necessarily know that from standing outside and just seeing the restaurant. And your inferences, if the food smells good and people are laughing, they're enjoying their dinner, they're having a good time, and I, too, will have a good time. But we need to stop and listen. I mean, it becomes automatic that observations inform perceptions and perceptions inform inferences. But when people start the conversation by saying, I don't think we should eat here. Well, how'd you get there? Maybe I do want to eat here. Why don't you want to eat there? Eat there. Back it up and say, "Well, you know, nobody's really laughing, nobody's enjoying themselves, and half the tables are empty." Back it up, and so that's how I differentiate among the words: observation, perception, and inference. And why not think about food and restaurants as a way to explain
0: it? Because <laughs> everyone can relate to that. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, if I can
1: just throw this in there, I was at, I was working in London at the beginning of last week, and you know, I arrived at nine o'clock, and it was three o'clock my or four o'clock my time, but I had to go to dinner and I had to do exactly what I just said. I had to divide, decide between an Indian restaurant, a Chinese restaurant. It was a neighborhood in London. I didn't know the concierge had recommended. He said, oh, they're both good. And I was just in a place. I was tired. I was jet lagged. I was hungry and I couldn't make a decision. So I used my visual intelligence. Hmm. Where were people laughing? Where were more tables full? I put my head
0: in what smelled good. And I made a really nice decision. So, so I mean, that's such a great example, right? And so, like, if people want to improve their observation and perception skills, like, what are some things they can do? Sure. Um, I practiced this with my son, who's now 19,
1: and he was raised here in New York City. And he would come home from school, and, you know, poor kid had to grow up with the art of perception. Not a normal mother, not a normal upbringing, always going to art museums. And I said to him... Tell me one thing you saw today that captured your attention. One thing that was out of the ordinary. And sometimes he would have to think, and then he was on to the game and he he would see something early in the day and remember to tell me at the end of the day what it was. But he would tell me something that sort of caught his eye or something that was unexpected or sort of overturned his expectations. And that would lead to whole conversations. And I think it makes you so much more interesting when you talk about something that people don't expect to talk about.
0: Yeah, for sure. So how can we use these skills to help one another in the workplace? I'm going
1: to give you a really overarching, it's going to sound like a platitude, but it's not. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to say, and it's at at the risk of TMI, but it's at the risk of sounding corny, but what I'm going to say is default to your humanity. Mm. Because before we are doctors and patients and lawyers and clients and financial advisors, we are all human. Mm -hmm. And the example that I'm going to give you, again, at the risk of TMI, but it's had such an impact on my life, um, in my non-existent spare time, I am something called a vigil volunteer. And, And what I do is I spend time with people who are actively dying so that nobody dies alone. And it's not nearly as morbid as it sounds. There are just circumstances where people are in hospice and their families can't be there. So I fill in the cracks and I live near a hospice and I just go and spend time with people that are dying. But the reason I tell you that is because when I walk into the room, most of these people can't talk to me and I have to use my visual intelligence and look around and say, do they have family members? Are they wearing their own pajamas? Are there flowers next to the bed? Are there cards? Is their favorite mug next to the bed? And just looking around gives me insight and information into the lives of these people that helps me be a better person sitting with them at the end of their life. Hmm. And again, I don't say that morbidly, and it's not depressing, and it's not selfless or any of that. I just say that when we stop and pause and engage and look at the information that's really available to us. So in a business sense too, know who who's on your team, who's going through a divorce, who just lost their, you know, their mother-in-law to covid, know all that and it makes you a better person, a better problem solver
0: and gets people to engage when they know you're engaging with them. Hmm. Crazy? Well, I mean it 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 sounds like being human, but we've forgotten yeah. but we've forgotten how to do that. <laughs>
1: We have. And you know what? The reason I love art so much, it is not only the greatest chronicle of our time, it's a celebration of all that humanity creates. All art is created by Mm. humans. And it puts people in the sense, as I said, going back to my day in college, oh my God, somebody created this. Mm. And it opens up a conversation that we're not just talking about revenue, profit and loss. We just broaden our lenses a little bit to bring other issues in. And it gives us the ability to see that initial issue just in a different light and from a different perspective.
0: Yeah. So so tell me, I guess what about your books? I mean, is there anything that surprised you or that you you didn't expect in terms of kind of reactions or stor- stories that people, as an author myself, I'm, I'm always interested in this, like the people, what resonated with people or what did somebody sure. go and do that, you know, maybe surprised you or you didn't expect. Um, that's just a, a great, a great story.
1: Yeah, well, two things that come to mind. Um one is I'm always so interested to hear how people have used this methodology whether they've, you know, taken part in one of my presentations or workshops or they've read the book and so many people have contacted me and said, "You know, I did this or I didn't do this and this is what the outcome was and I think it was really different after I thought about doing this with you." But the two things that come to mind, first was I was contacted by an emergency room doctor just last week. And she said, you know, we're about to convert from a community hospital to a trauma center and we're falling apart at the seams. We're just not communicating and we have this influx of patients and we need you. And I thought, are you kidding me? I'm an art historian, I'm a lawyer. What can I possibly do to help you put an emergency room back together? But she said, you're all about fixing problems. And she said, my emergency room is teeming with problems and I need help from the communications between the paramedics and the intake physicians and the nurses and the patient's families. And I'm going to this emergency room and I'm going to work with the entire staff based on what she read in the book. That was number one. And number two, I just found out last week that my book was named uh, one of the top 10 books on J.P. Morgan's summer reading list. And I was so honored and thrilled and sort of taken aback because I thought, I never really thought about this as a business book. But to have J.P. Morgan's imprimatur to say this is a book that, you know, they – it was clear to me that they weren't valuing the book for its look at art, but how looking at art can help people across the professional spectrum solve problems. And it's just been this aha moment for me. I mean, as I said, I'm honored and thrilled, but all these people that JP Morgan reaches out to worldwide saying here are the 10 books you should read this summer. Mine's one of them. I'm like, woohoo, but that's (laughs) kind of crazy that this simple methodology of thinking about the artist process and looking at works of art can help people you know, in, in all kinds of professions, even beyond the ones that I work with, help them solve their problems. So I'm honored and humbled and just feel really so good about the sort of validation of what this methodology can do.
0: Well, congratulations. I mean, I, I can completely understand that. I mean, I, and, and what I've heard you say is that yes, the methodology is about helping people solve problems better, easier, faster, perhaps, but it's also about improving our communication skills. And to me, I feel like that's kind of the core of it, right? Because everything's about communication. (laughs) That is
1: exactly right. And to share a phrase that one of my colleagues shared with me that I've carried through the uh, pandemic, it's a Latin phrase, festina lente. Hmm. And it means to make haste slowly. Mm-hmm. We all have to make haste. We all need to cross the finish line. We all need have deadlines. But if we take the time to make sure that we are in sync with each other and that we are communicating with each other and that we're all on the same page and we're taking in multiple perspectives, we're going to cross that finish line in, in a much, much better way than just because we race the clock to get there. Yeah. And so I've been trying to be really Um, conscientious of practicing Festina Lente, especially during the pandemic.
0: I I love that. So uh, kind of along the same lines, and obviously without, you know, naming any client names, are there any, I mean, just interesting examples about how your students, you know, like used your teachings and you talked about working with the police department, Um, anything that just kind of blew you away and that you, you know, that maybe you didn't expect that somebody took and used it to solve a problem?
1: Yeah, I'm going to share a funny example with you that <clears throat> I put in the book. I was hired by the NBA to do a session for the um, managers, all the you know security managers at the basketball games. You know who they are—the really tall guys with the wire in their ear—and they're watching the players, they're watching the audience, they're listening to their GMs in their ear, and they're making sure that the game goes forward and everybody's safe and happy. And you can imagine how much is going on in their heads. And I was invited to speak at their conference in Las Vegas. And here I am, the opening speaker, and I'm standing between them and their big lavish cocktail party at the end of the day. And this woman introduces me and says, yeah, Amy Herman's here from New York. She's going to show us how to uh, look at works of art to help you do your job. And these guys, it was like their they're signal to start scrolling on their phones. Like, are you kidding me? This woman's coming to show us works of art. And so I got up there and I said, we're going to do an instant replay here. Um, I'm going to have you for two hours. Yeah, we're going to look at art, but I'm in charge, and you're going to leave here thinking differently about the game and your work. <laughs> and all of a sudden, they were looking up like, who is this woman? And I put up a slide, and they had to introduce themselves to each other, and one had to close their eyes and describe the painting to the person next to next to them. They were all in They were so all in that not only did I go to their cocktail party with them, and half of them were retired New York City cops, it was one of the best sessions I ever did. And it was just this realization that, yeah, we all have something to learn if we step out of our boxes and working with those NBA security guys, they were so awesome. But just from the get-go, their biases, you could see their bias all over their face. Like, are you kidding me? This woman in a blue suit from New York City is going to show me pictures and you want that to help me do my job? And when they opened their eyes and they were willing to go all in, I know they all left differently because I spend the rest of the evening at their cocktail party with them and (laughs) none of us will ever be the same after that session.
0: Well, that's awesome. Well, Amy, thank you so much for all of the wisdom that you you have shared with us today. I know that I've gotten a lot out of it and I've really enjoyed this conversation and I am excited, um, curious, a little bit scared to try some of these things myself.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm cheering you on and I'm going to leave you with a quote from Henry James. This is what you can do. Henry James said, try to be the person on whom nothing is lost. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's not scary. You can do that. (laughs)
0: I will try. I got to put my phone down first, right? There you go. Exactly.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure talking to you.
0: I'm so grateful Amy could be with us today to talk about how we can use art to sharpen our observation and problem solving skills. Thank you to our producers, Rivet360, and our listeners. You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword work well, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series, or maybe a story you would like to share, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jen Fisher, or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to your recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well. The information, opinions, and recommendations expressed by guests on this Deloitte podcast series are for general information and should not be considered as specific advice or services.